Find your place in your Bible with me today, if you will, at 1 Corinthians. This is the third message in this series. Uh, 1 Corinthians. Third message, and we haven't got out of chapter 1 yet. And we won't get out of chapter 1 today either. But I want us to read beginning in verse 18, and I'm going to read down to verse 25. Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray together. Father, I ask now that as we continue in our study of 1 Corinthians, and especially out of this first chapter, that you will help us to see the power of the gospel. Lord, it is changing people's lives. It has changed people's lives. It is changing people's lives, and it will change people's lives. And I pray, Lord, that we'll never move away from the gospel. I pray that we will be faithful to the message of the cross. And I pray, Lord, that we will hold it dear in our hearts. Lord, there may be those that are watching this service or those that are in this service today, and they've not yet experienced the power of the gospel in their own lives. I pray today, Lord, that you'll awaken within them the sense of need, that they need the gospel they need Jesus Christ, and that, Lord, you might do a work of salvation in their lives. And in all of our lives, I pray, Lord, that you'll do a work of sanctification. It, too, is a work that's accomplished through the power of the gospel. So, Lord, we come before you now in these next few minutes to open your word and to listen to you and to what you have to say. And I pray that you will speak to our hearts this day. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul had gone to the city of Corinth. You read about it in Acts chapter 18. and He did what he did in every other city when he got there. He preached the gospel of Jesus. And the result was that there were people who came to faith in Jesus. There were people who trusted in Jesus Christ to be his or her Savior. And out of that... A church was born. Those people who believed in Jesus, those people became a local church functioning within that city. But you have to understand that the people who were a part of this church come from a very, very diverse background. They came out of an extremely pagan society. 
You know, you read about what was going on in the city of Corinth, and it's like reading the newspaper sometimes of the 21st century or watching the news of the 21st century. It really wasn't that much different today than it is or that much different then than it is today. The reality is that same paganism exists, and it's still afoot. But the gospel is still calling people out to come to Christ in salvation, and the gospel is still at work transforming people's lives. At the moment you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, at the moment you believe the gospel, you instantaneously become a child of the living God. You are eternally secure in God's forever. That's the great news. But you understand that that same gospel that saves you is the gospel that sanctifies you. He said here in verse 18, those who are being saved. He's not talking about people who still need to have that initial salvation take place in their lives. He's talking about that sanctification process that God is still at work in our lives, transforming us and making us like his son, Jesus Christ, and working in us the character and the, the values and the virtues of Jesus so that in this world, we are like Christ in this world. And the gospel that saved us instantaneously is the gospel that does that same work. I try to remind people frequently, you don't ever get away from the gospel. You don't say, well, I've got this settled with God and I'm now saved and we can go on to other messages. There are no other messages more important than the gospel and there are no other messages that are more needed than the message of the gospel. He calls it here the message of the cross. There, there is no other message more important because it brings not only that initial salvation of your soul, it brings the sanctification of your life. And we need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. We need to draw close to it again and again. We need to be reminded of it because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Unfortunately, the world in which these Corinthians lived is a lot like the world in which we live. People who heard the message of the gospel, they thought it was foolishness. They dismissed it. They thought of it as being something that was a religious thing that was unique to Christianity and was no better than any of the other gods of that world any other the little g gods of that world. And so they just dismissed it. They thought it to be something that was foolishness. And the Apostle Paul comes and he speaks about that very matter. And that's where I want to spend our time today. Actually, there's four statements that I want to give you, but we're only going to see one of those this morning. And the first statement, which is the foundational statement of where we will be this week and in the next message, is that many people find the message of the gospel to be foolish or to be foolishness. That's what he says here. Verse, seven, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness. And to whom is it foolishness? It is foolishness to those who are perishing. To be perishing doesn't mean to be dying physically. All of us are in the process of dying physically. But he's talking about those who will be separated from God forever. In other words, there's only one way to be made right with God, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's through the message of the cross. But to those who are perishing, that message is foolishness. 
The word foolishness comes from a Greek word that gives us our word moron or moronic. It's dull. It's stupid. It doesn't make sense. And that's how they looked at it. Many people in the city of Corinth looked at the message that Paul preached and that was the message that had converted the lives of these Corinthians. And they looked at the message and they said, this message is moronic. It's dull. This message is useless. This message is unimportant. This message is foolishness. Think about the message with me for a few minutes. The message begins with the story of a young teenage girl who's impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Nothing like this had ever happened before, and nothing like this will ever happen again. But here is a young teenage girl who says to those who are listening to her, those who are hearing her, the baby that's formed within me or forming within me is a baby that was created by the supernatural power of the God of heaven. This is not something that came from the natural act of mankind. This came from the supernatural act of God, and that's what's growing in my womb. Think about it for a moment. Even Joseph had trouble believing it for a while, didn't he? He was thinking about Mary. He was espoused to be married to Mary. He was planning this wonderful wedding to spend his life together, and now he finds that she's pregnant. Can it be true what she's saying, that this is in fact a supernatural child that's growing within her, something that is not the product of the union of a man and a woman, but something that is the work, the miraculous work of a God in heaven, of the God in heaven? Could it possibly be true? And he thinks about ways that he can put her away. He doesn't want to do it publicly. He doesn't want to embarrass her. I mean, technically, if this was an adulterous kind of relationship, he could have had her stoned to death, but he was looking for a more civil way to deal with it until God sends his messengers to Joseph and says, Joseph, it's okay. What Mary's telling you is exactly what has happened. And she's been chosen, and this family has been chosen, and they are the ones, Joseph and Mary, they are the ones God has chosen to bring up the one who will be called the Christ child. Think about it. He's born in Bethlehem, but he spends his childhood life in a, in a family that's really just a nothing family. They have no prominence. They have no riches. They have no, lo- they have no royalty. They have no royal robes. They have no power. They have no prestige. I mean, there's nothing about this family that makes them stand out. It's a young teenage girl, a man, a spouse to this woman who says now that the baby growing within her is a supernatural work of God. Joseph becomes convinced because God sends messengers, but they're living in Nazareth, in Nazareth. I mean, Nazareth is barely even a town. It's so small, it's barely even a town. And the family in which he's growing up There's nothing about this family that would distinguish them as being a family that God was going to use in such a royal way to bring the Messiah into the world. I mean, even the people of that day said, what about Nazareth? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Have you ever said that about one of the surrounding cities? In in jest... Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? 
And Jesus, during those formative years of his life, his childhood years, we know almost nothing about those years. We have a few details that are given to us in the Gospels about his growing up, but very few details about those years of growing up to the age of 30. He his father was a carpenter, and he learned the trade of his father. So you can imagine that he works in his father's shop, and he works with his father's tools, and he does the kinds of projects that his father is working on. But I mean, there's nothing about him that sets him apart necessarily from everybody else. At least initially, we don't read anything spectacular about him. And we're not told that when he was a child that he walked across the rivers on top of the water. Or that when he went fishing, he just had him jump into his hand. There's nothing spectacular that's told us about Jesus during those 30 years of him growing up. And when he gets to the age of 30, and he enters into his public ministry, do you know what he wants people to do? This person who's coming from a nothing town, from a nothing family, he wants people to believe that he's the Messiah. He wants them to believe that he's the savior of the world, that he's God in the flesh. And he travels. He moves about amongst the different cities, in and out of Jerusalem at different times, and down around the Sea of Galilee and the various places that he'll travel to. And he's teaching and he's talking to people and he's ministering to them and he's performing miracles. I mean, when Jesus spoke, nobody ever spoke like Jesus spoke. Jesus taught in a way that was a teaching with authority. And when Jesus was communicating, there was power in what he had to say. And they listened to him and they saw the things that he did. But most of the people just couldn't believe that this could be the Messiah. It just seemed so incredibly foolish to them. And then finally, they take him and they crucify him. They hang him on a tree on a hill outside the walls of Jerusalem. And hanging between two thieves, Jesus gives his life. Jesus is sacrificed for us. Those that were looking on knew that there was something different about him, but they didn't understand all that it was. When he said it was finished, they couldn't quite figure out what does it mean it is finished. And when he says he gave up his spirit, nobody took his life. He gave up his spirit. None of them could quite make out all that that was supposed to, to or intended to mean. In essence, what they were saying when they crucified him was, we reject you. You're not our Messiah. And furthermore, we look at you as little more than a blasphemer. We don't believe you. And then there were two that were secret disciples of Jesus who came. One of them came and the other helped, came and asked for the body of Jesus. And they said, we want to take his body and bury it. We want to prepare it for burial and put it in a tomb before sunset. And they were given the body by Pilate. And they put it in that tomb. They wrapped it and prepared it as much as they could intending to go back and finish the preparation later. They put it inside a tomb, and a stone was rolled in front of the mouth of that tomb. And you know what the Romans did? Because Jesus, this Jesus that's from a nothing family, that uh, is from a nothing kind of a city, 
that you know nothing about when he's growing up for the most part until he comes to his public ministry. And then he says, I want you to believe I'm the Messiah. I want you to believe that I'm the Savior of the world, that I'm the one who's come to redeem you from your sins. I want you to believe me. Who's taken in the Romans, crucified on a cross. I mean, that cruel, cruel punishment that he received between two thieves, both of which, by the way, reviled at him first. One ultimately has a change of heart, but both of them reviled because we don't believe you, Jesus. And we've heard you say that you're going to be resurrected from the grave. We've heard you say it. So what we're going to do is we're going to put a couple of Roman soldiers outside that tomb because we just know what's going to happen. Some of the followers of Jesus are going to slip up and they're going to open that tomb and they're going to steal that body and then they're going to say that Jesus rose from the grave, and we're going to make sure that can't happen. Can I just stop here and say, yeah, right. <laughs> that can't happen. We're not going to let that happen until that Sunday morning. And the stone was rolled away, and Jesus rose out of that grave, resurrected for the next 40 days, he appeared to hundreds of people, sometimes one at a time, sometimes in small groups, sometimes in a large group, as many as 500 at one time. And now he says people are to believe in me. They're to believe in the message of the cross. They're to believe that my death has paid the penalty of all mankind's sins. And if you'll believe, the result will be that your past sins will be forgiven and your present sins will be forgiven and even your future sins will be forgiven. But the message of the cross is foolishness. It's moronic to those who are perishing. They hear that story and they think to themselves, how can that be? That's no possible way that can be. And yet it is that word of the cross, it is that word of the gospel that changes people instantaneously when they believe it and keeps on changing them every day through the course of their lives into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is power in the gospel of Jesus. There is power in the message of the cross. The Corinthians have been arguing over preachers and over styles. And Paul comes in verses 18 to 25, and he says, it's not about a preacher, and it's not about a style. It's about the message. The message of God, the message of the cross, is the message that we know to be the power of God. Those of us who are saved and being saved, we know it to be the power of God. It transformed us instantaneously, and it is transforming us every single day. We know it's the power of God. Isn't it sad that our churches are leaving the gospel? Isn't it sad that we want to hide the crosses? Isn't it sad that we have... A lot of people who've left the, the congregation of believers professing to be believers themselves because the cross is no longer something that they hold of great value, but it's something that they look on as being merely foolishness. It's moronic. 
The Jews said it was a stumbling block to them. You know why? The scripture is clear that it says anybody that's hung on a tree is cursed. Anybody that's hung on a tree is cursed. There's no way that their Messiah could have hung on a tree. There's no way that our Messiah could have died the death that he died. They weren't looking for a crucified Messiah. They were looking for a conquering Messiah. They were waiting on their Messiah to come and to throw off the restraints of the Roman people. They didn't want to be under any other foreign government anymore, any longer. They wanted their own freedom, and they wanted Israel to be at the heart of the kingdom of God. That's what was promised in the Old Testament. That's what the prophets were looking for. They weren't looking for somebody to come and be crucified. And somehow, somehow, they read right past Isaiah 53. They read right past the suffering Savior of that chapter because all they could think of was the kingdom and all they could think of was reigning with him and all they could think of is him coming in all of his glory in all of his majesty riding on a great horse and he would come and he would conquer and he would throw off the oppression. But here is this lowly Jesus I mean, this is a teenage girl. Nobody even really knows who she is until we're introduced to her in the Scripture. She come, she, he, they, they come from a, a nothing town. This is a nothing family. And yet the one that is born to this family in this town that does these miracles and teaches these things and declares himself to be God in the flesh, you, you mean we've got to believe in him? And those of us, who have believed in him know that that message of the cross is the power of God. It is the power of God to salvation. But to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. That can't be possible. They stumble over it. To the Greeks, they said it was just foolishness. I mean, the Greeks were into wisdom. They were into the intelligentsia of the day. They were into what your degrees were after your name. They wanted to know what institutions you graduated from. That would be the equivalent of what they wanted to know. They wanted to know philosophy, and they wanted to know these various erudite kinds of thoughts, and, and we want to reason together, and we want to talk together, and, and you know, we want to be able to discuss these matters, and maybe we'll come to different conclusions about these matters. And Jesus says the conclusion is that the only way to heaven is through the message of the cross. There is no other way. You notice verse 21? Or excuse me, verse 20? Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? The wise would have been the, the erudite of the Gentiles. The scribe would have been the erudite of the Jews. Who is the one who wants to debate this with me? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, through its intellect, did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. A humble servant in Jesus, the Messiah, the God-man, born of the Virgin Mary, who lived in total obedience to the law of God, who crossed every T and dotted every I, 
who died on a cross, as cruel as it is, not for his sins, but for our sins, and who rose again from the grave and lives today to save anyone. That's the message you have to believe. But to the Greeks, well, that's not what we want to hear. We want to be able to debate these issues. We'd like something that's a little more intellectual than that. That's just not smart enough for us. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it was foolishness. It was moronic. You mean to put my faith in somebody who let himself get crucified and that that one person can pay the penalty of all sins for all mankind for all time? I mean, how moronic can you be to believe such a story as that? And Paul comes and says, listen, the power of God is not in what preacher you like and what style he has. The power of God is in the message itself. That's what Paul said in Romans 1.16, isn't it? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Where is the power? The power is in the message. The power is in the message of the gospel. The power is in the message of the cross. The power is in the message of that lowly Jesus. But there's a lot of people that stumble over that message, aren't there? And there's a lot of people who think that's just not smart to believe a message like that. And do you understand that neither crowd, neither Jew nor Gentile, by the way, you are either Jew or Gentile. Now, I realize in our world we're broken down in a lot more categories than that, but the reality is either Jew or Gentile, neither crowd got what they wanted. What the Jews wanted was something that could be shown to them. They wanted a sign. But they weren't given any other signs than the ones that had already been done by Jesus. And the Gentiles wanted to be told something. They wanted to be instructed in some erudite way that would make them feel better about themselves when they got to the end of it. But you know what the answer was to both of them? The answer to both of them was the cross. You want to be saved? You want to be eternally secure you want to have your sins forgiven you want to know that you have a home with God in heaven you want to know that you're a child of God forever you have to come to the cross for some that's a stumbling block for others that's just moronic but for those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ we know it's not about the preacher and it's not about the style we know that it's about the message and when we believe the message we were saved and we are being saved we are being set apart to God by that same message Say, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to hear the preaching of the Word of God. I don't need any more services. I don't need a life group. I don't need to read my Bible. No, that's foolish. That's the, foolish. That's the foolishness. Because it's this message where the power is found. Think about it this way. If you had a shotgun today, you had both barrels loaded with a shell, it wouldn't matter whether it was a marksman who pulled the trigger or it was a little child who pulled the trigger. The deadly power of that, of that shotgun isn't in the marksman or in the child. The deadly power is in the gun itself. You understand what I'm saying? 
It isn't about what preacher you follow, and it isn't about what style he has. It's about the message they proclaim. It's about the message of the cross. It's about the message of the gospel. It's about telling others that this one that others stumble over and some consider to be moronic is in fact the only means and the only way that you'll ever be made right with God. Do you know what that means? That means you've got to humble yourself. You've got to humble yourself and you've got to say, I believe in Jesus to be my Savior. And if you don't think that our world today is like that, just think about what they said about Paul when he preached that message. In the city right before he comes to Corinth, he's in the city of Athens. Remember, he looks out and he sees all of the pagan idolatry all around. He sees an, a, 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 a statue to the God, the unknown God, and he goes out, I'm going to reason with them, I'm going to preach to them the gospel, and I'm going to introduce them. He uses that as his springboard. I want to tell you who this unknown God is. It's fa in fact, you, you don't know the one true God. Let me tell you who this unknown God is. And he la launches into teaching them the gospel of Jesus. And you know what they said about him? They said he's a babbler. You know what a babbler is? It means a seed picker. It's like a bird. You, Paul, you, you just go around picking up different pieces from different things and cobbling them all together to make something to be able to say to us. And they said about him that he was a proclaimer of false gods. Can I just tell you something? The world we live in still feels the same way about the message of the cross and the message of the gospel. They might use different terms to label us, but the fact of the matter is that's exactly how they feel about the message of the cross. But to those of us who are being saved... We know where the power is. We know where the transformation comes from. We know in whom we have believed. We know the one we've trusted. And we know that our sins are forgiven. And we know that we have an eternal home with God in heaven. And we know that there is no hope outside of that gospel. I just challenge you. Gather together a group of your friends that are your neighbors or your coworkers or your buddies that you've hung around with forever that don't know Jesus and don't go to church and just walk into the middle of them and say, let me tell you the message of the cross that'll change your life. And it won't be long, they'll be calling you names. By the way, that's exactly what God told us to do. That's exactly what he instructed us to do. But somehow we're more concerned with the acceptance of everybody and everybody liking us, and we should be kind, and we should be considerate, and we should be tactful, and we ought to have good character. But we're more concerned with other people liking us than we are sharing the message that has the power. You don't have to be powerful. The message is powerful. The one that the message declares is the powerful one. You walk into that crowd, I'll tell you what'll happen. You'll get some that'll listen. You'll get some that'll laugh. And you'll get some that you won't ever see again. Because they think it's moronic, or for them, it's a stumbling block. But hear me this morning, you're listening to me online, or you're here in this service. I want to tell you clearly, I say it with all the compassion of my heart you have no other way to get to heaven than by way of the message of the cross. The lowly Jesus, born to a teenage girl and a stepfather named Joseph, from a 
know-nothing family to a, a nothing kind of a town who was rejected by his own people who had him crucified on a cross on Calvary who took on himself on that cross our sins once and for all and forever, all of mankind's sins, so that he could offer eternal life to any who would believe in him. That's the message that you need to believe if you're going to be right with God. It's still true today that what divides mankind into the saved and the lost is the blood-stained path that leads to a hillside where Jesus was crucified and a garden tomb from which he arose. What you believe about this message is what determines whether you go to heaven or you go to hell. Whether you embrace the message and say, yes, Jesus, I trust in you, or you reject it and say, that's not smart. That's sort of moronic. Or that's a stumbling block for me, and you trip over it. The reality is that that message is what determines where you spend your eternal destiny forever. Do you realize that nearly every major religion, at least every major religion I know of, and the ideologies of this world, you, you realize that they all have a symbol that represents them? The Jews have the Star of David. Islam has the Crescent. The Soviets have the hammer and sickle. The Nazis had the swastika. But you know what the symbol is for the Christian? It's not a cradle and it's not a crown. The symbol of the Christian is the cross. The message of the cross and this seemed crazy in the first century world just as it seems crazy to many in our 21st century world. But listen to those of us who have come to the message of the cross and believed in it. We can tell you with absolute certainty and absolute assurance that the power of God is in that message to save you instantaneously and sanctify you day by day until you see Jesus Christ. You know, what's interesting about this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm leaving out three points that I'll give you next week. I told you that from the beginning. This is just the foundation. This is what they thought of this, this message. I'm trying to say to you believers, don't be surprised when people think you're moronic or you're a stumbling block. You're the problem. Christians, you're the problem. Don't think that's strange. That's been going on since the beginning of the church. And those of you that have stumbled over this message and those of you that consider it to be moronic, listen to this preacher who cares enough to tell you that the truth is in the message of the gospel. The power is in the message. It doesn't matter whether it's this preacher or another preacher or my style or another style. It's not in the preacher and in the style. It's in the message. You've got to believe that message. But what's interesting is that Paul in verse 19 quotes from the Old Testament. A passage is found in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. And that particular passage of Scripture, if you go back and read it, it's profound in and of itself. But the context of that passage, what was going on, is even more profound. Listen to me for just a moment, and I'll bring this to a close. The northern kingdom of, called Israel had been taken captive by King Sennacherib of Assyria. He had conquered them and he had deported the people. 
And he was conquering one city after another city and after another. He's gobbling up territory. He's gobbling up these cities. And now he's moving south. Hezekiah is the king in the south in Jerusalem. Hezekiah begins fortifying himself, getting him ready for the battle that inevitably is going to come to him. And he doesn't know what to do. And he goes to God and God tells him exactly what to do. But here's what's interesting. The chief officer of the king of Syria comes and he gets close to the walls of Jerusalem and the leaders of Israel come out and they say, they have a conversation. They have a high level government conversation together. But this chief officer You know what he does? He speaks loudly enough so that the people that are close enough on the walls and around some of the walls of the city, they can hear because what he wants to do is plant fear in their hearts. And he says, listen, just surrender. King of Assyria says, just surrender. Look at these other nations. We've already conquered them. Look at these other cities. They depended on their gods too, but their gods couldn't help them. And your God won't help you either, Hezekiah. Just surrender. Let's not make this a battle. But God had told Hezekiah he was going to come and defend them. And God does something. You ought to go back and read it. 2 Kings chapter 17 to 19. You ought to go back and read it. God comes in those moments and he does something at an unexpected time and in an unexpected way. And he delivers his people from the king of Assyria. In an unexpected, at an unexpected time and in an unexpected way. You say, why does Paul pick up that verse? Because Paul is telling you that at an unexpected time, first century Jerusalem, in an unexpected way, a crucified Messiah who was raised from the grave, at an unexpected time, in an unexpected way, God came to us in order to deliver us from the penalty of our sins and even from the power of our sins. I mean, think about it for a moment. Who would have ever thought that a cross was the way to be made right with God? Who would have ever thought that that was the way that we were to live our lives every single day in view of the cross? Hey, friends, please listen to me. Don't get far from the cross. Don't drift far from the cross. Those that were once among the believers but now are no longer amongst the believers, they've drifted from the cross and they've become uh, the target of the enemy and he'll take them down every single time because the power is not in the messenger, the preacher. The power is not in the style in which he goes about preaching the power is in the message we proclaim. The power is in the gospel like it's in the shotgun. It's in the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation in you, my friend, today, listening to me today. You have got to believe that message if you're going to be eternally saved. And you've got to believe that message and keep trusting in the power of that gospel if you're going to be set apart and sanctified for Jesus Christ. Out in the Rocky Mountains, out west of Boulder, Colorado, there's an invisible, imaginary kind of a line. They call it the Great Divide. You've probably read about it. It's an interesting, it's an interesting read if you go read about it. But a rain cloud can come to that mountain range and 
the waters that fall on the western facing slopes of those Rocky Mountains makes its way down into the Colorado and over the rivers and ultimately into the Pacific Ocean. And the waters that fall from that same cloud that are on the eastern slope, the eastern facing slopes makes its way into the Missouri and the Mississippi and to the Gulf of Mexico and ultimately to the Atlantic Ocean. In other words, two raindrops starting out next to each other will end up literally oceans apart. So it is with the human race. Two people living in the same time, in the same town, from the same church, sitting on the same pew, maybe living in the same house, perhaps even sleeping in the same bed, can end up oceans apart in eternity, depending upon what you do with the message of the cross. This Jesus that came in the first century, he's pretty special. This Jesus that came in the first century was God in the flesh. This Jesus that came in the first century from a know-nothing family to a, from a nothing kind of a city, grew up in relative obscurity, who proclaimed the truth of God, who demonstrated that he was Messiah in his miracles, who went to a cross and paid the penalty for your sins and for mine, who was taken down and put in a grave and who rose again and was seen by hundreds of people and then ascended back to the Father. What you do with that Jesus depends on whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. What are you going to do with Jesus today?